Backstories is an annual multi-sited storytelling festival located in the suburbs of Perth and beyond. Produced by the team at Centre for Stories, Backstories gives community members the chance to spend an afternoon with friends and family in the comfort of a neighbour's backyard and enjoy hearing local music and stories from trained storytellers. Backstories was possible with generous support from our sponsors, Lottery West, the Department of Local Government, Sport and Cultural Industries, the City of Bayswater and the Centre for Stories Founders Circle. This is a live recording of our Backstories event located in the suburb of Mount Lawley. Recorded on the 20th of March 2021, this afternoon featured live music from The Happy Girls and emceeing from A.D. Chapman. The story you're about to hear is from Ryan. So... Four years ago, I saw a movie called uh, The Shape of Water. Has anybody seen that movie? Okay, good. For the rest of you, there's going to be some spoilers. Um, In The Shape of Water, the main character is this woman, very vulnerable, very quiet, with these horrific scars across her neck. And for most of the movie, she's kind of voiceless and struggling. But as she finds her way throughout the movie, she meets this creature from the Amazon, Uh, a beautiful, powerful creature that she falls in love with. And towards the end of the movie, in fact, in the final scene, that creature plunges back into the water and we're invited to think that the creature is on its way to freedom, to find its way home. And she jumps in after him. And those scars on her neck, which the whole movie we thought was a sign of her vulnerability and her flaws, opened up into gills. So I'm a classroom teacher, teach English at a high school, but it wasn't always this way because straight after high school, I got reasonably good marks and I was a decent public speaker. So I did the only sane thing. I signed up for law at UWA. (laughs) And there's a few members of the alumni here tonight. And look, I didn't like it from day one, um, but I kind of kept rolling along with it as you do. And... I, don't, I just sort of one day found myself in that law library doing some mooding competition. I think it was 2am. I was screaming. I was overhauling desks in the library. I've often wondered what it would be like to go back and watch that CCTV footage. And I just thought, what am I doing here? Why am I here in this law library? And so it hit me. I'm having an existential crisis. <laughs> now, we've all been there. We've all had one or two. And they're not fun. You know, you wake up every morning, you have that leaden weight in your chest. Oh, going into UW today, I don't want to do this degree. I'm not suited to it. What am I going to do? So I started doing all kinds of things. I started doing internships like crazy. If there was an internship, I was doing it. I started trying to sign up for things in Sydney, in Canberra, overseas. I was applying for things in India. And I'll get so excited when it turned out I got the internship. And so miserable when I didn't. And I got into this kind of frenetic, overwhelmed state of mind. I remember being in Sydney around 2013 on one of these internships. I was in Sydney, and my family, friends from Sydney nearby, I was part of this good social group. It was a great internship at a cool law firm. And I was just miserable. I was sitting at the screen all day. I could barely type. My brain was all clouded and fogged. And when I would get home, sometimes I would just lie there on the bed, unable to go out for exercise, unable to go connect with people, just lie there and cry. And I went to see the doctor that weekend. I remember him. My auntie recommended him. Thank you, Sean. And he looked over his spectacles after I told him my story. And he said, I'm afraid you have endogenous inherited depression. 
I said, oh, what's that? He goes, we're going to get you on some pills, right? And I thought, oh, no pills. I'm doing meditation and yoga. I don't need pills. But turns out the medication really did help. It really did. And within about three or four weeks, I could feel my brain start to kind of recover and like the shroud, the fog was being lifted. It was a wonderful feeling. And I finally started making some better decisions. Instead of economics honors or something else that I planned, some other mission that I planned to study, I decided to fulfill a passion, go to Israel, work with young people and volunteer. And I did that for about a year, a year and a half. And in the course of those experiences, I found that I really enjoyed working with young people. And so by the time I came back to Australia in early 2015, I had a strong conviction that I wanted to at least try classroom teaching. And pretty much from the first few days, I really enjoyed it. And I found a wonderful professional home there. So I thought, great, I've solved the existential crisis. I'm all good. But it was not to be. Because little tendrils of thought, the second year of teaching would start to creep up from the dark, unexamined recesses of my mind on the long drive home. Little tendrils of thought. Thoughts like, am I good looking enough? Should I get cosmetic surgery? Am I ugly? Am I enough the way I am? Now we've all seen a lot of us have, you know, passing questions about our appearance from time to time, but this was day after day, minute after minute, every drive home. And it got too bad, it got to the point where I was at school and I was unable to engage properly with my job that I loved and the people I was with because my mind was constantly drawn to facial comparisons, constantly throughout the day. And it got to quite a dark place with that. And after all that work I'd done and finally finding a career I was passionate about, to be back here, feeling myself slipping back into that depressive state. So I started to finally talk to people about it a little bit. But before I started to talk to them, I started to think back, well, why have I actually got to this point? Now, I'm going to give you some of the background. You see, I must have one of those faces where it reminds people of other people and cartoons that they've seen. Because I've been told I look like a lot of different people, you know? The main one, has anyone seen the movie Ratatouille? <laughs> Linguini from Ratatouille, that's the one I get a lot. So sometimes I get that one, now you can, now I've said it, you can see it. So sometimes I get that one, and then someone's like, Jerry Seinfeld, now sir, you got that Jerry Seinfeld vibe. I'm like, oh, Jerry Seinfeld, that's good. Linguini from Ratatouille, oh, that's bad. <laughs> and then one of like, oh, Tom Hardy. Oh, Tom Hardy, that's pretty good. The fruit and vegetable man, that's bad. <laughs> You know, and we'll go on and on like this. And I guess it's sort of funny thinking about it now, but at the time it was like every good one was like, oh, ecstasy, great, I'm okay. And every bad comparison was like caving in, feeling a bit crushed and down and depleted and not enough. I would have these things with photos, you know, always avoiding them, untagging myself, having anxiety before anything that there might be a photo, not wanting to look at them afterwards. And so these were the kinds of experiences that were kind of at play and then there was that moment at school that I remember where I thought, wow, this is really bad. And that was a Friday afternoon at my school. And I was teaching the sevens, seven threes. <laughs> oh, they were like little balls of adolescent dysregulation clambering around the room, each one with their own little agenda. And I managed to get to Friday period five. I managed to get them in some kind of zone where we were going pretty well. And we only had 10 minutes left in the lesson. I was like, oh, happy days. 
you know, we'll give them a little activity, a little game. I can almost taste that sweet Napoli Mercato almond, almond milk iced mocha that I'm going to get on the way home. And then I turned around. And this little kid, let's call him Jimmy. Jimmy is quite a talented artist. He would often, I would offer to Jimmy, put, get down, do your work. Get, stop drawing stuff on the board. And I turned around, and Jimmy had been drawing. And I turned around, and I thought, oh, it was unmistakably a caricature of me. You know? I didn't get a haircut today because I wanted you to see the curls in all their glory. So the lot of big curly hair, the long aquiline nose, the lips, the chin, clearly me. And I again felt from being so excited, elated, and happy that I made it to this period of the day, invested all myself in this job and these students and their learning, just felt so crushed and de defeated again. Let me tell you, it was a long drive home up Tonkin Highway that evening. And so that's what got me to the point where I realised I did need to start addressing this in a more direct way. So I started talking to people. I spoke to my family and friends. My mum heard about this. She started Googling. That's what good mums do. And she lay a booklet down one day and it said, Center for Clinical Interventions, Building Body Acceptance. I thought, oh, hello, more homework. Good on mum. So I started reading through it. I was like, and then it came up with this little definition, body dysmorphia. I've seen that phrase before. Body dysmorphia. Unhealthy preoccupation with appearance-related issues due to perceived flaws. I thought, oh, that's not me. I don't have perceived flaws. I've got actual flaws. So I don't have body dysmorphia. Thanks, mum. Nice try. That one's gone. So I went to the, I did the only thing I could do next. I sought out a Buddhist guru in the hills east of Perth. And I went in there and he was dressed in a flowing white gown. As they often are. He had his teeth. He said, I'm a mechanic. I used to fix cars. I see the problem. I figure out the solution and I fix the car. Human beings, I see the problems, I see the barriers, I see the solution, but you have to walk that path. I thought, I like this guy. He's not your average guru. So I spoke to him, I said, sir, you know, can you help me? He goes, what's the problem? I go, it's my face. He goes, what's the problem? And I go, believe me, my nose, this, the facial balance, the harmony, the features. He goes, well, turn to the side, Ryan, what are you talking about? I turn to the side, he goes, Oh, you must be Italian. It's an Italian nose. I go, no, Jewish. He goes, oh, how about a bit of racial pride? I said, that's not a bad idea. And then I said, you know, I've even considered going to a cosmetic surgeon, sir. I said, a cosmetic surgeon? Oh. He goes, you can make a cosmetic surgeon a hell of a lot of money, you know? But then, he looked at me, then you'd have to accept what you've done. And I thought, that's rather profound. Later that day, I was driving to Subiaco to see the cosmetic surgeon. And I rocked up there. Maybe not later that day, but soon after. And uh, he was another professional guy. And he goes, well, how can I help, right? And I say, oh, you know, the nose, the chin, the left chin, the left chin. Now, cross that off the list. The nose and the chin I could do something about. But have you thought about the ears? I said, the ears? I didn't even know I had a problem with my ears, but I do now. Oh, man. So I've tried mum and dad and the parents. I've tried the building body acceptance manual. I've gone to the Buddhist guru. I've gone to the cosmetic surgeon. Nothing's helping me here. You know, what do you do? What do you do? So 
I guess I kind of just kept going for, for a little while, kept sort of muddling along. And at some point, I must have ordered that body dysmorphia Bible. You know, every disorder has its expert in London somewhere or New York who's written like the Bible for this disorder. And so I ordered this one and I was sitting there one day. I remember the day vividly because later that day, I was going to go see the Bruce Springsteen like um, concert movie, Western Stars. So I had this cool day lined up. I was going to go with my dad, Leadville, get lunch, see the movie. And I thought I'd warm up with a bit of light reading my body dysmorphia before I hit the road. So I was reading and then I, I came across that definition again. Body dysmorphia, a healthy preoccupation with the face or other features. Belief that cosmetic surgery will fix the problem. I thought, oh, yeah. Then I said, but very rarely has positive outcomes because the mind inevitably finds some other flaw to focus in on. And in fact, in a lot of the times it makes things worse. Then I felt really down. Because I guess I kind of thought somewhere deep down that I would kind of have my cake and eat it too. I would keep doing all the work, the meditation, the yoga, the counseling, the conversations. But then one day I would just like dart down to Lesubiaco, see the plastic surgeon, come out with a better face. I thought I could have the sweet self-acceptance and be better looking. But the Bible was telling me it couldn't be that way. And again, I felt really down. I drove to uh, Leaderville with my dad. And not, you, know, you get very good at hiding your emotions when you've had experience like this for years after years and you've pretended to be extrovert or the life of the party and you've concealed from people for so long what's really going on. So you get pretty good at putting on a mask. And I was pretty good at putting on a mask, but I couldn't do it that day. And my dad obviously saw how something was up and we talked about it a little bit. And we were sitting in there in Luna Leaderville and the boss was singing. I can't remember the song, but I do remember one of the lines. And one of the lines was, are you really experiencing sorrow or are you just attached to the pain? And that kind of resonated with me. Now, I'm not sure what really happened after that. Maybe it was continuing to do meditation and deeper meditation. Maybe it was starting to inquire a little bit more into what was this self that was rejecting another aspect of it? What was this aspect of myself or personality that was rejecting a part of the way I look? Maybe that was one angle. Or maybe it was learning a bit more about compassion. Remember I had a student in class last year, he said, I think compassion is the foundation of our civilization. I thought, well, maybe it is. Maybe it was time to have a bit more compassion for that part of myself which was so critical. I'm not quite sure. Not quite sure. But I guess it started to sort of ease up a little bit. You know, those moments where I would have those extreme highs when someone would say something nice, or those extreme lows, Jimmy would draw a caricature of me on the board, it started to level out just a little bit. Not overnight, but just gradually as the months went on. And earlier this year, you know, I 
the students that I teach, a lot of them have had a lot of troubles in their life. Um, a lot of them have had a lot of experiences of failure at school. And so we had this, had this class at the start of the year, these year 10s. There was a lot of negative energy in the room and I was trying to engage and keep people under control or at least make some kind of connection. There was just so much negative energy. I said, guys, let's just stop. And I sat down. I said, now we're all sitting here together in the same room. And I know that there might be some negative thoughts going through your mind. You might think to yourself, I can't do this. I'm no good at school. I'm not enough. Just because you're having those thoughts doesn't necessarily make them true. And I'm here to work together with you and we can move past that together and you can flourish and thrive and you are enough the way you are. And I could see in the eyes of a few of the students in that room that it did make a little bit of a difference. It did make a little connection with them in that moment. And that was the first time I'd been able to say something like that really with conviction because I'd lived that experience myself. And in that moment, as I was looking out at those group of students who were quiet and thoughtful, it just made me think a little bit of that scene, that scene at the end of The Shape of Water, where the main character with the scars on her neck jumps into the water and they turn into gills. It just made me wonder if maybe the thing that all our lives we thought was our flaw, our weakness, the thing that made us not enough, perhaps if we looked at it in a different way, this could be the thing that gives us breath and sets us free. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Centre for Stories is a not-for-profit organisation with charitable status. Our team is small and nimble and we love what we do. To help us continue doing what we love, consider a small donation. You can donate at centreforstories.com.